Appreciate Jerry getting my podium today. I don't think you heard me. There we go. I said, I appreciate Jerry getting my podium. He offered, he knows I'm getting old and, you know, slow, and so he's like, I got you covered, man, so I appreciate that. Um, as you saw in the video earlier about K-groups, I, w- I just want to encourage that. Uh, John Dowdy said something the other day that just I thought was great. He said, this is a good time to jump into K-groups because you can kind of try it before you buy it. You know, you can, you got like eight weeks left, and so you can jump in and be a part of one, and then you don't have to commit for a, an entire year. You can just uh, try it for the next eight weeks and see, because as the video pointed out, we really do need one another, and I think sometimes we forget that, because life, you know, we start cruising, we start going, and we're, we seem like we're busting out our tasks, doing our stuff, and yet we sometimes forget that our purpose here isn't to just do our stuff that's in front of us for the day. It's to know God's will, do God's will, and see God's will. And left to ourselves, we just don't do that, do we? We, we just default to just checking off our list and doing our stuff. And so K-Groups is a time to remind each other and to just hold each other accountable. And it's a great opportunity just to have Christian friends. I mean, plain and simple. You need people, like I like to say, in the foxhole with you as you fight this battle. In Hebrews, it talks about how that we need to encourage each other, and it says daily so that none of you can be, will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because that's what happens. Sin's deceitful, and you don't know you have a problem until sometimes it's way past beyond the, the, the situation where you like, know you need help, and then who do I turn to? So I want to encourage you uh, to, to jump into a K-group and to be involved, because I mean it's so easy for our lives to blow up, our families to blow up. I, I've talked about how that uh, you know, just different pastors along the way that I follow you look at their lives, and many of them have left their churches, left their families, even left the faith. And I, I, this was true last week. I grabbed a book off my bookshelf that I, I was like, oh, the, yeah, that book would be great reference for what I'm going to talk about last week. And I grabbed it, and I was like, wonder what happened to that guy. I haven't heard much about him. And so I Googled him. Another pastor left his church, divorced his wife, and all out of ministry completely now. And, and so if it can happen to pastors, it can definitely happen to you. And so I encourage you to be in part of a group, and as we navigate this world, I mean, you really have enemies after you. you got your flesh that we know is always battling against what we know we want to do. In our Bible reading today in the group, I'm in, it talked about how the struggle, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, those are things I do, and that, that is a real battle with our flesh. And then also Satan, he's real, and he, and he wants to destroy your life, and our enemy is the world as well. In this world, we know is anti-God. Have you ever had a situation where you just, something happens and it's kind of in your face and it just makes you so mad, like you just get so angry about it? I had a situation like that um, some years back. I'd never seen this before and, 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 and so I was walking through the parking lot of all places, my church parking lot in Tallahassee, and there was a car parked there and it just made me so mad. So angry. In fact, I considered just tearing up what I saw. You know what I'm talking about? I saw this Darwin fish on the back of a car in our church parking lot. Now, that wasn't probably all righteous anger, the fact that I wanted to, to, to destroy this and pull it off the car, but you, you've been there before. And maybe you've seen even this one, too, they, they coexist, uh, things on people's car. What do we deal with that? How do we, how do we handle that? Because the truth is, Jesus doesn't coexist. You know, tolerance is kind of the main value 
for this coexist idea. Now, let, let's define some terms here, okay? Back previous, some years back, the idea of tolerance was not necessarily a bad thing. Old tolerance would say, I may dislike what you're saying or what you believe, but I defend to the death your right to say that. We've always had people we disagree with. There's going to be people of different religions and different faiths. That's going to be the case in a pluralistic society like ours today. That's old tolerance, which says, hey, you have a right. But now there's a new tolerance that says the religion or belief that refuses to say another religion or belief is wrong is most virtuous. So the religion or belief that says, oh, no, we can never say you're wrong, that's virtuous. That's lifted up. And anyone else who displays anything different than that is you're, you're pushing hate. You're pushing hate out there. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, Jesus does not fit the new definition of tolerance, all right? Jesus could not coexist. Why? Because Jesus, as coexist would like to say, it was merely a good teacher, a moral teacher, and they disregard the fact that Jesus revealed himself as God and the only way to eternal life. So, Jesus, we can accept him as a good teacher. Even, surprisingly, believe it or not, Judaism accepts Jesus as a teacher. Some even say he's a prophet. Yet, they ignore the facts of what Jesus said, which was, he was the only way. He's the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through Jesus. So, Jesus can't coexist, and Christians can't buy into this idea of this new tolerance. And we're going to see this Crystal clear today in our text on, in John 7, 25 through 36. In just the last verse, I'll just start there and then we'll pray and look at the passage. Jesus said, you'll seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot go. That's exclusive. You cannot go. Who's he talking to? What's this about? Let's pray. We'll look at our text, John 7, 25 through 36. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of John and just how amazing it's been just to walk with you, Jesus, just to follow the steps of your life and just to see the incredible difference that you made in the world that you lived in and also the world that you control and you own, God. We just know beyond a doubt that you were from the beginning with God. And as John 1 says, that you were God. And Jesus, we pray that our lives will center more and more around this truth. God, I pray you'll help those who are struggling today, those who are just find themselves alone and, and disconnected. God, I pray that you'll allow them to just take the initiative to jump into a K-group and be a part and build some friendships with Christians who can really encourage them and help them as life will inevitably um, bring them things that they don't expect. And God, I pray that you'll Glory will be lifted up today. God, may Jesus be lifted up. In his name we pray, amen. So just kind of a recap where we've been in John over the last few weeks, okay? So you may remember that many people who claim to be Jesus' disciples, these people were disciples at some level, they abandoned Jesus because it was too tough. Jesus was saying some things that just seemed too hard, and so they left and then you have the religious establishment of the days, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. These are the people who controlled Judaism. These people hated Jesus. And as we're getting further along in the book of John, you see that hatred growing. We're going to see that today even more. And they want to destroy Jesus. 
And then it may surprise you that Jesus' own siblings, his own brothers, don't believe in Jesus. And so here he is in first century, century Israel. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as we call it, was about to happen in Jerusalem. Here Jesus is, it's out in the ruler areas, out in Galilee, and his brothers come to him, his biological half-brothers, and come to him and say, Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, you need to go to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is where everybody is that's authoritative, and they can say, yes, you are the Messiah, you are who you claim to be, they can verify your miracles. What are you doing hanging out here away from Jerusalem? Jerusalem is where it's at. Jesus says, I'm not going with you to the feast. I'm not going with the big family. And there's a reason why he's not doing that. Jesus is going to go privately because it's not his time. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It wasn't his time to die. So he wants to keep a low profile going in to the, the feast. And so he says, I'm not going with you. But when the people get to the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus is the talk of the town. People are, are discussing him. Hey, this Jesus guy. Is he, is he a good guy? I think he's a good guy. No, 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 no. He's a con artist, man. That guy is a con. Don't believe him. And so there's this discussions going back and forth on who Jesus is. And so if you're reading John for the first time, or it's been a while, you may be surprised what we saw last week, that in the middle of the feast, Jesus comes into the temple and he begins to preach. He begins to speak. So he goes into the, really the heart of Judaism right there at the temple, and he stands up, and it would be like Vladimir Putin going to one of our army bases right now, right, and saying how much he hates America, right? You just wouldn't do that. That would be, not be smart. Jesus goes into the temple, and he begins to teach. He had been away from Jerusalem for six months. Now he's, now he's back in the temple, and he's teaching. And the, like I said, the Jewish uh, people don't know what to think about him. And you have the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, who are controlling the religious establishment of the day. They hate Jesus. And so Jesus just stands up. He begins to teach boldly. And he begins to just really put them in their place, so to speak. Now, Jesus, it's not his time to die. We know that. We know that will happen later on. But we see here that he is not afraid of them. He knows God is in control. And so he's back in Jerusalem. And I love what Luke says. If I can just reference Luke for a second. It said when Jesus headed off to Jerusalem, it said he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You see, that is a Hebrew idiom, which means he's determined. He's basically got one thing in focus. He's headed to Jerusalem. And the point of heading to Jerusalem is ultimately the cross, his death, and his resurrection. And so he begins this direction. And it'll still be a while yet, but he begins going in that way. And so he goes right into the mouth of the lion where the religious leaders are there. And the people are shocked that he's standing up in front of them. So let's go to verse 25. And we read, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that Jesus is the Christ, that this guy's the Christ? Is that what's happening here? And so you may be a little confused if you were here last week or you're looking back in your text in verse 20. Last week, the crowd responded when Jesus said, they're trying to kill me. He responded, you have a demon. 
Who's seeking to kill you? All right. So the crowd responds, Who? Jesus, you're out of your mind. You're just paranoid here to think that people are trying to kill you. But in this passage, these people say, look, they know that Jesus is the wanted man. But this is a different group of people. You have all these people who've come into Jerusalem for the feast. So you have hundreds of thousands of people, extra people, in Jerusalem at this time. And John specifically says in verse 25 that it's the people of Jerusalem who say this. Because they're the insiders. They're the people who live there. They know what the Pharisees and the religious leaders want to do. The people, the crowds who are coming in from the surrounding territories, they don't know exactly what's happening here. And so the people of Jerusalem, they know that Jesus is wanted. And they, and they ask, why are they arresting him? Right there he is. And then they begin to speculate. Could it be, verse 26, could it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Could he really be the Messiah? Well, no. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, definitely don't think that. So why aren't they arresting Jesus? Well, we know from the divine perspective, from God's perspective, he's in control, and so he's not going to allow that to happen. But from a human perspective, why is it not happening? Why are they not arresting Jesus? Well, just a reminder that Jewish people, they were under the occupation and the rule of the Roman Empire. And so uprisings among the Jewish people would bring in harsh Roman authority. And so right now it was relatively peaceful, and so many people probably just didn't want to stir things up, mix things up. And also, you had a group called the Jewish Sanhedrin. These were like the elite rulers of the Jewish people, and the Jewish Sanhedrin had authority over the decisions that affected religion and the political life of the Jews, but ultimately the Roman Empire retained the right to accept or reject the verdicts that the Sanhedrin would give out. And so they would have to give the stamp of approval. And so at this point, Jesus had not done enough in order for the Pharisees and the religious leaders to feel confident that the Roman government would be on their side if they arrested him, they took him in. And what's interesting, you may not have realized this, that when the Sanhedrin ultimately does arrest Jesus, they bring him in on charges of blasphemy, right? They, they, they say, you, you're claiming to be God. You're claiming to be equal with God. And so that's how they arrest him. But when they bring him before the Romans, they accuse him of treason. Because the Romans probably, I mean, they don't care. They just want to keep peace. They don't care about blasphemy against God. They're like, you guys mind your own business over there. Do your thing and just stay peaceful. And so at this point in Jesus' ministry, his kingdom Preaching was hardly a threat to the Roman Empire because he was not out there trying to have some coup against the, uh, the, the Romans. And so from a human point of view, this was not the right time to do it. But we're going to see here in a, a few seconds, the leaders, get their, their anger gets the best of them, and they attempt to arrest Jesus. So the next few verses, what we see here is a lack of understanding from the point of the Jewish people on really what the scriptures say. And I've talked about this a lot over the last couple of weeks as well, how that the religious leaders, while they were all messed up in the political aspects of Judaism, they were doing very little to actually help the people see God as he really was and teach scriptures. All they were concerned about was the legalism, the rules, and people obeying the letter while they themselves lived lives of hypocrisy. And so in verse 27 in response to verse 26, could they believe that he's Messiah? And then the people respond, 
But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so they immediately dismissed the possibility that Jesus could actually be the Messiah because they know Jesus. He's, he's from over there in Nazareth, all right? We, we know his, his dad was Joseph and his mom's Mary and his brothers. They don't even believe in him. And so they're looking at, this, at Jesus and they're thinking, there's no way this guy's the Messiah. Plus, there was this belief that went, along, went around at that time, which was contrary to the prophecies that were given in Malachi about the Messiah being born in Nazareth, I mean, being born in Bethlehem. But they thought that this figure would appear out of nowhere. Nobody would know where he came from, and that would be the Messiah. And so they're confused. Their theology is bad, and they believe in this hidden Messiah tradition where he would appear to Israel. So they're ignorant of the scriptures, and they're confused about what's going on here. And then verse 28, Jesus steps in in all this confusion, the stuff that's going on in the crowd, and he says, so Jesus proclaimed, all right? That word means that he speaks loudly. He gets people's attention. It could even be translated in some places as, as screaming out. So Jesus proclaims, as he was teaching in the temple, they're talking, they're disputing among themselves, and he says, you know me? And you know where I come from, all right? How do we take that? There's no question mark in the English, but it makes sense to think that he's saying to them, so you think you know me, all right? You think you know me, and you think you know where I come from. But he goes on, but I have not come of my own accord. He, God, who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So he looks at people and he says, you don't know God. All right, imagine that. Their whole life is built around their religion. They've come to the temple to celebrate and worship the Feast of Tabernacles. But just because you come to the temple doesn't make, mean that you know God any more than coming to this church means that you're a believer in Jesus. And so Jesus points out to them, you don't know me, and you don't know the Father. Now, Jesus does speak ambiguously here at times, and he constantly keeps his opponents and the critics off balance. So if you read the book as a whole, you probably see this sometimes, that Jesus doesn't provide a lot of the clarity that we would, like, why is he not just saying this clearly? But again, he realizes that he's on his Father's timetable, and he's careful how he refers to God here. He doesn't say Father because how they would respond in anger. But Jesus is clearly claiming that he came from God. And as we get closer and closer to the cross, he's going to be even clearer on that. In fact, in John 14, he flat out says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And so uh, critics will sometimes point out Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Well, he did. And he made many references to the fact that he came from God. And in John 14, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is interesting, all right? If you're into apologetics, which doesn't mean you apologize for your belief. Apologetics means to defend the faith. It's interesting to note that no other founder of any other of the major religions ever claimed to be God. Based on the historical evidence we have, no other founder of any of the major religions ever claimed to be God. Jesus says, I'm God. I come from God, and I am God. And he's saying here in our text, 
you have no idea where I came from. You think you do, but you have no idea where I came from. And you have no idea that God sent me. I came to this planet because I was sent here by God. I came from God. And so he states that he came from God and he's on God's mission. And they're thinking, no, you're from Nazareth. We don't get it. You came from God? And Scripture teaches clearly, and that's why we hold dearly to the virgin birth, that Jesus was not born of man. He was born of God through the Virgin Mary. And it's important because in our culture, again, all these things are going to be, are constantly being pushed at. Just exist, coexist, just get along. All right, don't tell anybody they're wrong and you're right. Don't believe in miracles, don't believe in the supernatural. Just follow the science, right? And so our faith requires us to see that Jesus was so much more than a boy who grew up in Nazareth. Jesus came from God. And Scripture teaches that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And obviously, many of his time were very confused by this, right? They're scratching their heads like, "Uh, we don't understand that. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. So we can definitely understand how first century Jewish people would struggle with this. But I want to go back to a verse that Jesus, we referenced last week, what Jesus said in verse 17 of this chapter. He said, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. You see what he's saying? He's saying if you truly want God, if you want to know God, if you want to do His will, if you want your life life shaped by God, you're going to resonate with what I'm saying here. You're going to to connect. You're going to see that my authority is beyond this earth. That I'm from God. And the same is true today. Again, there's people who come to churches week in and week out. And if you ask them, you said, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I am a Christian. But the truth of the matter is that they really don't have faith in Christ. They don't connect with truth, and they may tell you what you want to hear, but in reality, they don't believe. Now, I'm not talking about having doubts. Most people experience doubts from time to time because we're not wired to believe things that we can't touch and feel and interact with. We, we, that's the way we, we just, everything is true if we can maneuver it or manipulate it or deal with it. We're, we're very much a hands-on type people. And so it's hard for us to believe in things that are on a different level, that are beyond our comprehension. And yes, we have such historical evidence about Jesus and such truth. There's, there's so much there that leads us to say, you know, how can you deny that Jesus like, he, he actually lived and, and, and breathed and walked this earth. There's no question about it. And most historians will tell you, even if they're secular, they'll say, yeah, Jesus probably lived. Very few say, no, no, no. But Jesus made claims, and he did miracles, and he did incredible things. But the main reason, I think, why people believe in Jesus is what we talked about a few weeks back was God gives them the gift of faith, and then we just... We want to, on the human side, we want to follow God. We want to know God. We know there's more than this earth, this life. 
And because we want to seek God and know God, that he gives us faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the God-man. Isn't that amazing? If you seek me, you'll find me. If you seek me with all your heart. And so if you desire to know God, he's not going to turn you away. Skip down to verse 31, and we'll come back to verse 30. Yet many of the people believed in him, right? That's great. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So they, they, they say, wow, a Messiah coming could not do more than what Jesus, we've seen him do. The miracles that he's performed. But as amazing as the signs and the miracles were, I'm sorry, but oftentimes that's not enough to bring us faith. And we think it is. We do. We think it is. We think that if we just saw evidence, then we would believe. But many people in Jesus' day saw these miracles and did not believe. In fact, as I was preparing for the sermon, I was thinking about some specific conversations I've had with various people over the last few years. And a couple of different people had these like amazing stories of like seriously supernatural like level where they just saw things and experienced things that were just like, whoa, that's, that's tough to believe, right? And sadly, like the, the few people that I was thinking about who told me of these situations that happened to them, neither family is walking in the faith currently. And that makes me think, you know, we think that if we had like hard evidence that our faith would grow stronger, but that's not the way it works in God's economy. And so I, I love this quote by D.A. Carson. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. It says, faith based on signs is not strong, strongly encouraged by Jesus throughout the gospel. He doesn't strongly encourage it, though it is better than nothing. There is no hint, however, that these people in our text developed any deep understanding of the significance of the signs, thereby grasping who Jesus really was. And so it appears like while these people were amazed by Jesus, they didn't put their faith in Jesus. At least most of them didn't. So remember that. Amazement is not faith. Amazement's not faith. You know what I'm, I'm, I'm pretty amazed at? Pretty amazed at skydiving, all right? Anybody been skydiving? All right, a few of you have. Like, I watch it on TV. People tell me about their experiences. I'm wild. I could, I could just watch people jump out of planes and, and, and float to the ground all day long. I mean, it fascinates me. It amazes me. But I'm sorry, John Woodrum is not jumping out of a plane, all right? He's not. Like, I, I'm not going to do that. Somebody would have to push me out for that to happen. You see, I'm amazed, but I, I, I don't have faith. I'm not going to do it. And so people were amazed by Jesus, amazed by his miracles. But sadly, by the time we get post-cross, post-resurrection, you only have 120 people who are in the upper room. And so you see a lot of these people who their belief was shallow belief. Back to verse 30. So this is the religious people, the religious authorities, they. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. And then skip, we read verse 31, let's skip down to verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about, about him, 
and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And so they hear the crowd speculating, talking. Could it be the Messiah? Does the religious people, authorities believe that he's the Messiah? And so they get wind that this is going on, that people are beginning to believe in Jesus. And so they respond. They want to snuff this out. They want to shut Jesus up, and they want to deal with this. But Jesus isn't able to be arrested, verse 30, because his hour had not yet come. Again, that's that divine providence that we don't know exactly in the text why they couldn't arrest Jesus at this point. But God's protecting them, and he avoids being arrested. In verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Then they don't understand. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the, the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And so they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Is he going to the Jewish people that are spread around the world among the Greek empire and among the Romans? Is that where he's going? Is he leaving the Jewish nation? What's going on? And so the people, they don't understand what's, what's happening here. They don't understand Jesus' words. But then Jesus, verse 34, he repeats back what they say. He says, What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They they don't know what Jesus is talking about. You will seek me and you will find me. What's he talking about? They repeat back, Jesus, what's he saying by that? And the the thing that just really, really just stands out in this text is the fact that Jesus makes it clear that you just can't come. You can't come. Why? Is Jesus that mean? Does he want to just push people out? He doesn't want people a part of his kingdom? They don't have faith. They're not seeking God. And it sure doesn't come across very tolerant, is it, what he's saying here? And so here's the truth I want for our head today. This This is the knowledge we want to have today, that we walk away with knowledge that says that this sounds a lot like Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be here for a little while, but I'm, I'm going to be going away. You won't know where I've gone, and you won't be able to come. Because he's going back to his Father. And their lack of faith is going to eliminate them from being able to be with God. Their lack of trust and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Justin alluded earlier about Jason Davis going home to be with, with God yesterday in a tragic accident and asked his parents yesterday when I was visiting with them if it was okay if I said something about this, and they said, absolutely. 43 years old, tragically killed. Most of you have heard about this. Jason, every week, sat back here in this corner. He's a great guy was able to go to lunch with him a few years ago and sit there and ask him about his faith, and he confirmed his faith, and his family were saying, man, he, was, he definitely was a believer, loved Jesus. And his dad, I just talking to his dad, it reminded me a lot of my dad when my brother was killed, that my dad, just his faith was so strong, and he said, he's in a better place. 
And sure, we don't understand. We don't know why it happened. We have lots of questions ourselves. Why would that take place? Why would that happen? But what's awesome and what's amazing and what's great is to know that we can know that Jason is with the Father because he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He didn't die in his sin. Jesus paid the price. And when he put his faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus accepted him wholeheartedly into the family of God. How do people mourn and grieve without that hope? I don't know. In chapter 8 of John, Jesus says this. He says to them again, he says something very similar, but he adds a little phrase. He says, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus clarifies in chapter 8, makes it very crystal clear. This is not about him going away somewhere physically and then not being able to locate where he was. This is Jesus returning to the Father after his resurrection. And there's people who are going to die in their sin, and they're not going to be able to go. They aren't going to be able to come with Jesus. They're not going to be part of his kingdom. They're going to be eternally separated from Jesus because they did not put their faith in him. I'm so thankful that Jason Davis had a relationship with God and knew Jesus Christ. But let's just don't assume because you're in church that everybody here is a believer, is a, is a, is a true Christian. So let me ask you, is, is your faith in Jesus? Have you allowed society to push you to, you know, I just want to be tolerant. Yeah, Jesus, he, he was a good guy, and his teacher is pretty amazing, some of the things he said, but, you know, the, the only way to God, and, you know, there's a lot of different religions out there, there's a lot of different faiths, and, you know, who am I? Who am I to say that, like, their belief is wrong and mine's right? And you see, it's a slow trickle to begin to buy into this tolerance that our society is pushing upon us. And pretty soon, we don't know Jesus. We think we know Jesus, but we don't know him. And soon, it becomes real, the fact that we don't believe in him any longer. We don't believe his claims. And like the pastors I've talked about, and many others, that they claim to know Christ, but they turn from the faith proving that they never knew Christ in the first place. So I think Jason would want us today to examine our hearts and see if our faith is in Jesus Christ. As he's with God, he knows what's going on. And he wants us to know, don't make a decision to turn away. Don't accept the tolerance of our world. Put your faith and trust fully in Jesus. Is Jesus drawing you to himself? You will seek me and you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, yet, like Isaiah said, it may not be tomorrow that God's seeking you. Today is the day of salvation. And what's awesome, Jesus says in verse four, chapter 14, he says to those who believe, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for those who have faith to believe. So the question is very simple. The application is very simple. Do you need to come to Jesus? Not, have you joined a church? 
Have you been baptized? Not were you confirmed in a church one time? The question today is, do you know Jesus? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Is your hope in him? That exchange that we sang about, his life for mine, his righteousness for my sin. It's not complicated. It's not difficult. Satan wants you to think it's complicated and difficult. And he thinks that you're in your mind, you're saying, well, maybe I can measure up one day. Maybe if I get the point where I can, I can do good enough and keep, you know, keep the law and keep you know, things right and be moral, then I'll consider putting my faith in Jesus. And that's Satan trying to confuse you and add to salvation. It's grace alone by faith alone, Christ alone. It always has been and it always will be. Where's your faith? Let's pray together. I just like to don't often do a response and just ask everybody just to close your eyes. Who would say, I feel God drawing me today for the first time to salvation? That I I may have prayed a prayer at some point, but I don't think my faith is real. And today is the day of salvation that I feel God drawing me in and I'm placing my faith in Jesus Christ for the first time today. Would anybody just raise your hand if, you, if that's the case today? Okay, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us truth because it gives us Jesus. And God, we, we feel today for the Davis family, we're so hurt for, for Jenny and Rex and the family. God, our, our hearts just go out in this loss. But I, God, I thank you that there is hope because Jason knew you. And God, I pray that you will help us, God, as we live our lives and as things happen like this and we question, we wonder, God, help us to keep our eyes upon you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. God, you took on the cross. You died so that we could have life. And God, I pray that we will build our lives upon you. Help us to not to, to get sidetracked with the things that want to pull us away from the main thing, God. Help us to keep Jesus the main thing in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we think. In his powerful name we pray.